Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. If you're like me, you get a lot of requests by email that are just spam, asking for something. Well, I get a lot of requests asking to be a guest on the podcast. And most of these are pretty easy to dismiss as just spam. I'm pretty sure that most listeners are not interested in hearing from me about products to enhance bodily functions or to buy less expensive life insurance or things like that. But when an ornithologist who's been studying one of the leading causes of bird mortality for over four decades and who is one of, if not the, leading expert in the world on that subject, asked to be on the podcast and does it primarily to get the word out of things you can do and the scope of this problem, it definitely gets my attention. Dr. Daniel Clem is an ornithology professor at Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania, and he got his PhD from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale while doing research into bird collisions and death from glass window collisions. I knew that this was an issue, but I had no idea of the scope. I didn't know that it would take about 333 Exxon Valdez oil spills to kill as many birds as the low end of the best estimates for the number of birds that die with collisions with glass windows every single year. I also had no idea that less than 1% of glass window pane collision bird deaths occur at skyscrapers, with 44% occurring in residential or commercial buildings less than four stories tall, and 56% on buildings 4 to 11 stories tall. It makes sense when you think about it, because birds live in areas with more vegetation, and that's where homes, schools, and small commercial buildings are located. On this episode, we talk about the scope of the issue, what you can do yourself at home, or your place of work to prevent birds from crashing and dying on your windows, as well as lots more. So help me welcome Dr. Daniel Clem to the Bird Banner Podcast number 126. Daniel, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's it's a distinct privilege and a, a pleasure. I look forward to being able to uh, interact with your audience. Yeah, I hope so. It should be fun. Daniel, you have done a lot of research on window and glass pane bird kills. But before we get to that, and you actually wrote a book about that that we'll get to later. Uh, but uh, before we get to that, uh, tell me your birding story. How did you get interested in birds and, and how did you come to be an ornithologist and go down this, this route? Okay. Uh, let's see. Like a lot of people, I'm the product of Eastern European immigrants and they had no formal education. So they were attached to the outdoors. So hunting and fishing was part of their life. And that touched me as a youngster. I've never really been a hunter, but uh, I have fished and uh, roamed the hills of northeastern Pennsylvania uh, throughout my youth. And so I had an interest in all wildlife. And I, through a much longer story and torturous route, I managed to convince people in a local university to let me in. And I went to school uh, really just as nobody should be a student going to school, coming out of the bushes. And I managed to struggle through. Um, I saw the Atlantic Ocean and fell in love with it and thought I wanted to try to find an occupation that helped me work outside. So I applied. um, uh, And to my amazement, just because there was uh, constrictions, people my age in 1968, when we graduated college, we there was no uh, protection for graduate school. So it was taken away from me. And so 
I was taken into the service uh, when I came out. Uh, I got into birds because a professor at the school that I enrolled in was an enthusiastic ornithologist looking for a research student. And he was the first one really that paid me any serious attention in terms of guiding and helping and, and, and putting some time and energy in me and, and wanting to know and uh, just nurturing and enriching me. And so I took his ornithology class. Uh, I did some research with him. I remember, I remember telling him one day when I came into school that I had seen what I thought were buffgrits and sandpipers out in the potato fields in Eastern Long Island. And he said, oh, haven't been here for 20 years. Uh, doubt it, what do they look like? I told him, he said, let's go. We got in his car, we went out there. We were mercifully found the birds. That was the first time my name appeared in the literature in American Birds for discovering, which he gave me credit for, you know, the versus sandpipers. Anyway, uh, from there, I was looking for a graduate program. I, uh, this was Hofstra University on Long Island. And I, mm -hmm. I looked for a graduate program and I enrolled in uh, Southern Illinois University. Southern Illinois University actually has two campuses, one in Edwardsville, which is east of St. Louis, and another one in the bottom of the state, which is a huge uh, 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 university with farms and law schools and medical schools and so on. And the zoology department was where I enrolled. And by just happenstance, because I went there to study birds of prey, and uh, I ended up doing the window thing because because of political changes, uh, the, uh, one of the professors invited me again to study with him. He was the ornithologist. And there was a young man who refused to collect the nest that he asked him to get. And he was upset by this the day I happened to be in his office. And uh, he said the reason he was upset was because the same student lived in a home that was palatially covered with glass and brought in 50 to 60 birds that were killed striking the windows every year. And he never thought that there was an ethical issue associated with his home or how these birds were being killed. But he thought there was an ethical issue with the nest. And so he was railing on about this. And he says to me, you know, Dan, there might be something in this for you. And then he said, you know, such and such a building in chemistry kills a lot of birds. People bring them into me. So the very next day I went at five in the morning and I sat down in front of that building and it didn't take long. As soon as light came uh, to the surroundings, a morning dove flew through the empty leafless tree and smashed in front of the windows in front of me. I went to look at other buildings on campus and found skeletons and feathers and smudges, and I was sort of hooked. And from then, which was the winter, January of 1974, until present, 48 years later, I am still studying, writing, and trying to teach about this issue. Wow. Uh, so really a fortuitous beginning, but a passion of yours, obviously. This window strikes, you know, somehow I was, you know, naive. I'm a birder. I kind of am interested in things like that, but uh, naive. I thought, you know, it was just skyscrapers and great big glass buildings in Manhattan and the big flyways that were an issue. But I, I got a chance to read through your book quickly this weekend and it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the deal, right? I always, when I give talks, I, I try to explain, look at, we're not them, meaning we're not birds and we never will be. Right. So, what we humans, uh, whether we're biologists or not, what we have to attempt to do is to take some measure of what we believe their visual systems are capable of perceiving, right? So our physiologists inform us about this. You know, do they have color vision? Uh, what are some of the spectrums that they see? What is the acuity? All this kind of thing. And we use it in relationship to comparing, comparing our own eyes. And then, of course, there's their behavior. 
And so I'm not a physiologist, but I'm a student of physiology, trying to learn as much as I can about the avian visual system. And I am a, a, a serious student of behavior. And so all of this information gathered together resulted in me being able to interpret that birds really behave and as if glass is invisible to them. And hence the subtitle on my book, Invisible Killer, Saving Billions of Birds uh, from Windows. I, I think, again, the evidence is everywhere. Look at wherever there's a piece of glass in birds coexisting, you have the formula for a tragedy. And it's not just in North America, because a lot of people like myself who started studying this, it's not just in North America, it's all around the world. And again, you know, I got very frustrated when I first started studying this and I finished my PhD work on this topic in 1979. I thought, you know, the journals like Science and, and AUK and Con, they'd be fighting to get this because it's such a novel uh, uh, set of a data set and, and interpretative uh, conservation issue. Uh, but boy, was I wrong. I mean, it took me almost 10 years to convince the editors of these journals that it was a worthy topic. They kept on returning my papers without any explanation, saying they were it was an unsuitable topic for them. They were embarrassed of their explanation. They didn't want to insult their advertisers. They didn't want to take on a topic that insulted their person who bought their magazine because they had glass windows on their house. They were looking out for themselves like, you know, like everybody does. But that's my take on it. Yeah, well, I, you know, that's that's an interesting, and 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 it it certainly is reasonable, but it it really literally did take a struggle for about ten years. It got so bad that when I would write a paper, and I had done some new experiments or some new studies and revealed some new things, I I would query the editor. You know, are you going to return this to me in a couple of days because it's unsuitable, or are you going to give it serious attention? The last. Uh, like with science and with the AUK, it came back in just days, you know, unsuitable. But the Condor actually sent my paper out for, uh, and arguably at that time, it was the second most prestigious ornithological journal in North America. Sure. And uh, uh, two reviewers uh, gave it wonderful reviews, recommended it be published. And the editor, again, said unsuitable topic and rejected it. So it was frustrating, but eventually... Uh, it got the ear of uh, an editor who was sympathetic and listened to uh, their referees. And it got its first airing in 1989 as a general overview paper. And then a sort of interesting thing happened. I was, I was at a meeting at the uh, Field of Ornithology, Association of Field of Ornithologists, and I was just chatting with a colleague and we were talking about what each year studied. And he said, and, and, and I told him I couldn't help it with frustration with why I couldn't get this thing these papers published. And he said, well, who were those editors of Condor? And he says, well, I know them. And I happen to be the editor of the Journal of Field Ornithology. And so why don't you send your papers paper to me and I'll review it myself and I'll take the reviews of the Condor referees and I'll make my own decision. And he ended up just asking me to split the paper up into two, uh, to two, doc two manuscripts instead of one. One was talking about the mortality rate and the prevention, and the other was talking about the cause of death and injuries. And so that really got me started. And from there, uh, with my students, and uh, then later on with colleagues, there were very, very few, again, scientists. I think one of my greatest, I think, uh, rewards today is seeing the young scientists that have been turning their attention to this issue, people from the Smithsonian and a group out in Oklahoma State University and uh, uh, another group in the University of Alberta and uh, uh, the Canadian Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service have all 
recognized that this is a very, very serious issue. So, so let's go back. So during those days of frustration, trying to get people interested and, and have them recognize the frame of reference that we're talking about in terms of the level of mortality. And, and the first thing I would remind everybody is that, you know, we humans are responsible for the deaths of, of, of lots of different birds for lots of different reasons. And none of them should be dismissed. And we shouldn't be in some kind of comparative argument about what's more important or what's less important. We should be trying to solve all of them. But scale does matter. And so when I would say, look at every time I hear a national news broadcast about an environmental issue, especially a tragedy, it's an oil spill. And, you know, I've already documented through very, very objective assessments and data collection that, for example, you need 333 Exxon Valdez every year to equal my lowest estimate of 100 million birds dying at windows in the United States alone. And I said, nobody's talking about windows, but everybody's talking about oil spills. And then you had the Gulf Horizon. You need thousands of those, really, before you would equal what the current level of estimate is, which is about 365 to about 1 billion birds. That's 1 million birds dying at windows every day. And Another study has revealed from some of these other researchers who have pointed out that almost, well, 44% of all the attrition comes from residential homes and one to three-story commercial buildings or schools. 56% comes from buildings that are four to 11 stories high. Less than 1% comes from skyscrapers in cities and urban areas. But yet, the people and the public, when the national news does cover window strikes, they do so from cities. I always argue that's because that's where reporters are, and that's where the birds tend up being very visible on sidewalks and so on. But it's under very unusual circumstances. For example, uh, most people think, you know, the, the lights are the big issue. And I've been told recently that the Audubon Society and a few other organizations are going to have a campaign coming up on lights out programs. Please don't get me wrong. I'm completely in favor of that. But again, scale matters. You know, on clear days, birds that are migrating at night, our warblers and our sparrows and our vireos, you know, they're passing over these cities unaltered by their paths. No problem. It's when the weather is bad and the ceiling is low and they're forced to fly lower that they become influenced by these lights. And get this, they're not dying striking those, those towers. They're being attracted by the light and they're milling around in and out of the light zone. They become exhausted. They flutter to the ground. Now they're in the canyon of glass and concrete. Now they're going to be deceived by those clear windows trying to get on the other side of the atria. Now they're going to try to get to that vegetation that's being seen behind the bank window. Now they're going to be trying to get to that vegetation that's reflected in reflective windows, mirrored windows. And that's where the death and carnage is taking place. It's not going to help for people to turn out their lights in their homes. Birds are not going to be influenced by that. And they are going to be influenced and they are going to be protected if you turn the lights out on these skyscrapers. But it's important to know on those days when weather is tragic and bad, because only then will you concentrate huge numbers of animals in one spot. So now they're available. I always point out, you know, how do you explain who gets killed where and in what numbers? Here's the deal. If the glass is invisible to them, Common sense tells you that the more birds you have in front of that glass, the more carnage, the more strikes, the more kills you're going to get. And so I say within the immediate vicinity, within 30 meters, 10 meters, uh, 30 feet of a glass. So if you've got a bird feeder that's building up 
large numbers in front of your picture window, you can predict that you're going to have a lot of strikes and you're going to have a lot of deaths. And studies have documented this. Yeah, you talked, uh, you mentioned bird feeders. It was interesting to me. I always thought, you know, keep your bird feeders away from the windows. The birds will get killed. It's just the opposite, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right, but there are limits. Uh, you know, here's the limit, you know, and again, we have some objective experimental data to document, you know, the results of, and make these claims that a bird one meter away, a little over, you know, three feet, 3.3 feet, it can build up enough momentum to kill itself outright at the window from a perch. If it leaves the perch and flies into the window, it can die immediately, right? Or it can become injured depending on how it strikes. But if you move that feeder <laughs> where the birds are coming and going from, within that meter length, then the bird won't be able to build up enough momentum to hurt itself. So the closer to the feeder, the closer to the window surface that you put your feeder, seems counterintuitive, but the closer you put it, the more protection you're giving to the birds. Just beyond that, anywhere beyond that, and it's a death trap. Yeah, I read in, I read in your book, it can even be like six or eight yards away and that's not far enough. No, right, exactly. And People have misinterpreted that paper, you know, I mean, I, I wrote that paper and you'll see in the conservation literature, you know, it's okay to put your feeders within three feet of a window or 30 feet away, 10 meters. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. And I've tried to correct that in the book, you know, and by pointing it out, look at, there is no safe distance to put your feeder away from a window if, if the feeder brings animals into that danger zone. If they can leave your feeder, even if it's 60 feet away, and they can enter that 10 meter danger zone, they can be subject to the illusion of a reflective vegetation and end up dying. And so trying to place your feeders at distances where you would divert them away from your home, away from your windows is, is one possibility, right? But most helpful is having those feeders close up. And look at, you get to see the birds up more close and personal anyway. So I, I, I think this is a, a very important issue. You know, other, other simple protective measures that you could do around your home are there's netting, you know, leaving your, your mosquito netting screens up. Um, there's some paracords they're called bird savers. You can, you can buy this really cheap or make your own. Uh, a big industry that literally has developed over the last several years has been uh, tapes with decals on them that you can apply to windows. And for remodeling and new construction, there's glass that has patterning on them that can be purchased, right? For mm -hmm. uh, with two techniques, both of them give you like a frosted, to our eye, a frosted dot or a line. Uh, one is called ceramic frit, where it's high temperature bonding. And the other one is called acid etching. And they both provide patterns for both birds and humans to see, and it protects the birds. I often refer to the elegant solution. There are a couple of manufacturers have done this, and there's a longer story here about that, but using ultraviolet signals, uh, patterning in the same way where the birds see them and we don't. And, and I've got experiments to document that that works. And so uh, trying to get these options available, right, to people right. and to inform individuals who are interested in constructing a house or building a new building and having them be able to inform their architects and the developer from the very beginning to know about these issues are extremely important. So making our built environment, you know, and, and here's, here's the rub, right? These guys don't have any voice. 
They're always innocent. They're always being killed unwantedly. And it's our responsibility just because we created this problem to protect them. You know, on the scale bit, again, you may be reminded, you, I'm, certainly your listeners have seen this, right? In 2019, a, a, a group of scientists published a paper in Science that documented 3 billion individual birds have been lost to the North American bird population since 1970. And in this document, they highlight, they point out that windows are a principal cause of this mortality factor. Along, of course, which everybody knows about, you destroy the habitat, you destroy the ability of anything to survive. So that's number one, always on the list. They point out that cats are a big thing too. And I point out in my book, I tried to explain to people, look at, we don't have the data to compare objectively cats and windows. Again, I think it's a false argument. We should be in that business. We should be trying to protect birds from both cats and windows. But the, but when you think about the, the cat issue in ways in which some people try to trump or try to try to shadow the window thing is that, you know, cats, I've got documents and I've even, I've even uh, wrote papers about this and I have it in the book where, you know, cats along with dogs, skunks, even chipmunks and raccoons, they've learned that they can find dead and dying birds below windows and they come and collect them, right? So the cat numbers are compromised in the sense that they're taking window kills and they're being attributed to them, right? And the other thing that I like to point out to people is that, think about it, all of the buildings spread all over the world, all of the sheet glass in terms of the surface area is so astronomical. It's hard to imagine that could be equal by the number of cats. The other thing is that cats, like almost all predators, take the unfit members of populations, the vulnerable. But windows, I've been able to argue, right? Without having a specific, you know, cause and effect relationship, but using reasoning, lots and mountains of reasoning, I've been arguing that windows represent an indiscriminate killer. It takes the strongest members of the population as well as the weakest. And we can't afford that. Bird populations can't afford that. And, and so, Again, this combination of threats and the kinds of outcomes, it's, it's not very positive. And it explains how we've had this horrific decline in animals. Population biologists often describe mortality factors for natural populations as into two great categories. One, compensatory mortality in which populations are said to breed more youngsters into the population in subsequent years and generations, and mm -hmm. thereby you know, recoup make their populations healthy and sustainable. But this particular issue, I argue, the window issue, not the cat issue, is indiscriminate. It takes the fittest as well as the unfit. And it's an additive factor. It's on top of everything else. And so there's no way that the population can compensate for that. That's a, you know, a, a difficult situation for sure. Uh, what sort of things could, you know, just me as Joe homeowner, what, what should I be doing other than, uh, you know, the feeder issue, you know, it is a, a somewhat of an issue, but it sounds like optimally I'd be able to, when the time comes to replace my windows, get some of these really cool ultraviolet yeah. windows. But I read in your book, I mean, nobody wants to make those because there's not enough market or not enough perceived market at least. So though, that's, that's what an issue. What can I do right now with my existing windows? Well, let me just comment on your, what's manufactured now, right? Yeah. Uh, it turns out that Technically, right, from a materials engineering point of view, you can create these ultraviolet signals that protect birds on novel glass, on original glass, right? 
uh, it's much more difficult to do so on films that you might use for retrofitting, right? Mm -hmm. There is a company that I worked with, had a research grant, and they have a, a solution, but they refuse to make it available commercially, which is, you know, heartbreaking for me. But uh, so, so the ultraviolet approach is possible. It's just not as widely. There's, there's actually a company in Montreal called Walker Glass. They have a whole brand just for uh, 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 bird safe glass. It's called AV Protect. And their AV Protect T windows are uh, ultraviolet signals. And another major manufacturer worldwide is a US company called Guardian Glass. And they also produce an ultraviolet windows. And they both sold these you know, to commercial uh, conservation, uh, environmentally uh, savvy and interested people uh, in development. Um, but they need to do more, right? And it has to be done more. And, and I always describe the deterrence approach to this, right? Which is, is an integral part. Uh, and there's a whole chapter in the book on solutions and so on that I talk about. But the, the, I always divide it up into two things, short-term and long-term. Short-term is, you know, the whole world has to be retrofitted if we're going to protect the birds. They're all being killed all over the world right now. So how do we stop that? Well, we have to do something to those windows. And this gets to your question about what homeowners can do. Because homeowners, which are a major source of these debts, they can invest in getting some of these strings. Now, now, let me, before I go any further, point out that when I first started studying this in the 1970s, some of the most ardent conservationists told me, Dan, you go mucking around with the way I look out of my window and you're going to lose. Nobody's going to pay attention to you. And that has been the case since I started for decades. But for the last five, 10 years, that's turned around, not 180 degrees, but at least 30. And people are now more willing, right? They're, they're, they're buying these things, they're making them. They're, and so there's a group in Toronto, there's a, a, a film company called Feather Friendly. It's a subsidiary of another one called, a group called Convenience Group. And they're solely dedicated to producing these films with these markers on them that you can apply. And then there's Kaleidoscape, which has been around for a while. And that's sold now. These days, you can get Kaleidoscape from Amazon just by ordering it. And so what are these? Well, both of these films are made by the 3M company in Minneapolis. You know, they're sort of the elephant in the world when it comes to films. Sure. But they, re they refuse to sell this film as a bird deterrent. They, they sell it. They made this film and they sell it for advertising. This is the kind of patterning that you see on buses. When you go inside the bus, you can see out, but on the outside, you can see the advertising, right? And mm -hmm. they put it on certain windows of buildings and so on. Uh, and actually, in the very early days, in I think the early 2000s, they put some of this film with a pattern of like uh, white birch trees on the Toronto Zoo. And it's been up for 14 years. So its durability is not a question. It's just that 3M won't sell it for this purpose because it had a different purpose. But what they'll do is they sell it to this convenience group. They sell it to Kaleidoscape and they then make unique patterning. You know, they make whatever the customer wants. And the most offensive thing I think with the Kaleidoscape was that I've seen on government buildings at the Patuxent National Wildlife Research Station is like a white sheet. So you go and you look at their buildings and they all got like white sheets all over them. Surely, you know, somebody could have been creative enough to use like a matte finish like that blended in with the building, you know, facade. But no, it's a white sheet, but it protects birds. So it's fine with me. So homeowners now can get relatively cheap these these tapes from the convenience group. And I've seen them sold like 
in zoos. They'll have them in the gift shop and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll try to explain them and so on. So, and this savers, uh, uh, bird savers, uh, they're called a copium bird savers from the author of who designed this. He has a whole website and you, you could actually order them from him, but he gives you like a YouTube explanation of how to make your own. I watched that YouTube this morning. It's really, it looked like it could be kind of fun. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it's cheap, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's an easy fix. It all goes back to, you know, what's the tolerance of the homeowner and how committed are they? And do they really look I cannot tell you thousands upon thousands of people have told me, Oh, this never happens at my house. Right. And I write in the book, you know, I said, listen, if you really paid attention and you hear something in your home and it's a, it's, it's like somebody banged or bumped something, it's not really a ghost. It's probably a bird that hit your window and you're unaware of it. And everybody who has ever told me that their home had never had a window strike, I always take great pleasure when, I, when I'm given the permission and the opportunity to walk around their home with them. And I'm telling you, there hasn't ever been a home where I haven't found evidence of a smudge, feather imprint, or an actual body right below the window or remains of one that had not had been overlooked. You have to remember too, you know, like all animals, when they hit windows, if they survive that initial strike, they're injured. And the way we humans put vegetation around our homes and our commercial buildings, they hide the dead and dying. And so it's not easily available. So hence, when you say, you know, people give this more uh, tension in cities, it's because when you're looking for shoes or a dress or a pair of pants, the dead are right in front of you. You can't ignore them, right? They're on the sidewalk. Yeah. Not so much in uh, in suburbia or in our homes and so on. It's often hid, hidden. So the bad news to listeners is your home is killing birds, but the good news is that you can do something about it. Yeah. And, and on that theme, right? On that theme, Everett, is, you know, my hopeful attempt uh, to be positive and enthusiastic. And I point out, look at, yes, climate change is something we all have to be attentive to. And we hear it every night on our national news, but it's unbelievably complex. We, we can't even begin to try, you know, other than obvious things about talking about controlling carbon and so on, but the actual details and the, and the implementation seems almost at this stage, you know, beyond comprehension. And it's existential and overwhelming. But this particular environmental issue, this is something we caused. This is, I've been able to try to document, this is our doing and it's harming these animals. They are so useful and aesthetic and, 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 and valuable to us. We have to be good stewards. We have to, and this is a problem that can be solved. It can be solved, solved tomorrow. But that homeowner that's going to make his home protective work can be solved tomorrow by making sure that lights are out or that buildings in cities and suburbians and residential areas are all protected. So we can do this. It's just that we need the will. We need to convince people. And my big line is, look at these birds. You know, they don't have any voice. We're their only outlet. We're their only protection. I don't know if you caught it at the end of the book, right? But one of my... reviewers of the book or technical reviewers said, Dan, you got to end this with something, you know, dramatic or, or, or to try to capture somebody's attention. So my last chapter is very short, but in there, I have a, a, what I came up with to try to capture their attention, sort of like the Exxon Valdez, right? And what was that? Well, I said, 
imagine a population of individuals in which leaders, neighbors, friends, family, acquaintances, co-workers, they're dying. And, and you have absolutely no clue what's taking them away. There's this, this, there's this killer that's stalking and you're perplexed. Now enter an alien who has powers to see things that the individuals in that population cannot. And that alien is able to identify the problem and solve it and save and save the health of that group. And so I say, think about the windows as the force that's taking away the animals and think about humans as the saviors. And I think that that can work, right? The other thing I like to point out too is, look at, in the book, I, I, I show some pretty grisly things. One of them is American kestrels that get into abandoned houses and they come down through the attic and they get into the lighted areas of rooms. There they are. And when I find them, and I found many, their emaciated bodies are smudge marks right in front of the window. It doesn't take again, I always joke about this, right? Uh, I don't know why they use rocket scientists. I don't know why they don't say ornithologists to figure out what's going on here. But those poor birds, the power of seeing outside space through that clear window was so great that they could not relieve themselves or understand why they couldn't get to it. And they died starving. They died a horrible death. And they didn't have the wherewithal to retrace their step to go out. And I argue that that power of that stimulus and that inability to try to get through it, in, in a way, it helps to try to also explain people that have bias about this or any other claim that we humans are causing harm to the environment. If you don't really look and try to reason, you know, not in a negative way. And so when you were talking in the beginning, you know, so, so, so my motive for this book over the almost half a century that I've been studying and writing about this is just my latest attempt to try to inform. You know, I don't want to be pedantic about it and say I'm interested in educating people. I just want to inform them about some common sense things and show them the evidence. And, you know, Dr. Fauci is always talking about data, this and data, that. You know, I was thinking to myself, gee, can't he use some other words, you know, like evidence that more people would be able to understand? So all I'm trying to do is inform with evidence and capture, you know, a critical mass of the general public that will influence those developers and those architects and make this built environment safe for birds. So that's the motive. It's written for every citizen on the planet. I'm sure every citizen on the planet will not find it of any use, but maybe your audience, you will, will be able to share the information. Well, I found, I found it interesting. Uh, so again, the name of the book is Solid Air, Invisible Killer Saving Billions of Birds from Windows. Uh, so how, how would somebody come across this book? How do you find it? Well, you know, the publisher is a small publisher in Surrey, British Columbia, and it's called Hancock House Publishing. And if you go to their website, you can, you, you can order it from there, right? Mm -hmm. and, but they are committed in most of their publishing to conservation issues and have done, you know, species specific books on, on Cooper's Hawk and Golden Eagle and things like this. And, and so they wanted to make sure that when they produced this book, they did so with recyclable material from the boreal forest. They thought it was hypocritical to try to sell a book 
using paper from China or someplace else when they're talking about a conservation issue. Now, because though they felt compelled, right? Mm -hmm. Because they felt compelled to get the book out when they promised, they gave the authority to Amazon, for example, to be able to publish the book. And long before it was available from the publisher, even for me, my wife ordered it from Amazon. And get this, who knew Amazon's facilities print, package, and mail the bloody book that you order the very same day you put your order in. They it is amazing. It, package yeah. it, and they send it to you. My, do- my daughter wrote a book uh, that got published just recently, and that's it's basically that's how it works. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of shocking that that can happen. Well, I, I think, again, Hancock, the publisher, of course, and I want uh, you know, your audience and any interested person to buy from them because it's, it's supporting our cause. Mm-hmm. The book is not, you know, it's not extravagantly expensive. It's, you know, most of it that I've had is a, uh, is a paperback version. It's like 25 bucks. And if you order the, the hardcover, it's about 34 or something like that. But so it's, so we're not talking about something you're paying hundreds of dollars for, like my poor students have to do when they buy a textbook, you know? Sure. So I, I think, things are reasonable enough. It's just, again, trying to convince people it's worthy of their time and energy. And also in the book, I'd like to point out that, you know, I have a whole chapter on what citizens can do. And in there, I give examples of letters that could be written to architects and developers and to legislators, you know, municipal, regional, and federal, to ask them to consider this issue because you know, we all know that if we ask people to do something that's for the good of the cause, whatever that cause might be good, if it's a voluntary effort, they're not going to do it. So when people told you to put your seatbelts on and there was no law that ordered you to do that, few people did it and, and lots of people died. But when the law came and it forced you to put your seatbelts on, it saved a lot of lives and it told people that, you know, this is a, an appropriate thing to do. And likewise, I think what's happening now is that we're seeing more, uh, and there's, a, again, a longer story here as to why, and I talk about this in the book, you know, why the federal laws, which protect all birds in North America, and even regional laws, like in the state of Minnesota that has a blanket law, they're one of the few uh, for protecting birds uh, from windows. Um, they're, 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 conf- they're confusing and they're not very effective because there's questions regarding the litigation and how judges will We'll, we'll view them, you know, if, if you try to hold some developers' feet to the fire. But municipalities ha- have been a source of hope because cities like New York and Chicago and, uh, and, and San Francisco, they've been passing laws. They're telling their developers that they have to take this into account. And we need the whole country to do that uh, naturally. And of course, if we could get around to getting our federal government to be uh, more blanket in protection, uh, you know, nobody's trying to in this particular uh, common cause, you know, nobody's really trying to take away any individual rights of any humans. But what we have to do is that we're the only game in town for the birds. We're the only ones that are able to protect their rights to life. And if, if again, another part of the book talks about the services that these animals provide, it's just astronomical. You know, I, again, I'm sure your readers are aware that about every six years, our national government produces a report that says how much money is being spent on avocations. And every year, gardening always comes in number one, but burning mm-hmm. comes in number two. That is, that is wonderful, isn't it? That's yeah. Pretty cool. it, isn't, it, it isn't pets or cats or anything else. It's burning, right? It's a, so I, I, I think there's a lot of economic and financial incentive. You know, just the bird seed alone is a multi-billion dollar industry. So to think about having, you know, their clientele disappear, worse, 
having them die in front of them, you know, after they're attracting them to the hazard. So again, I think there's a lot of good reasons, you know, whether it'll convince that critical mass that I'm trying to get together. I'm not sure, but, but I'm not giving up. We need to find a way to make it cool. We need to find a way to make it cool to have bird safe windows, you know, maybe I don't know. Madonna needs to do it or something. Some 17 year old Madonna type person. I don't know, but you're right. I think uh, finding a way to make it cool, finding a way to spread the word, but uh, listeners can take the lead and, uh, and uh, people ask them why they've done what they do and maybe they'll do it too. That's one way we can start at least a little bit. So Daniel, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you as maybe a keynote speaker for a, a conference or whatever? My daughter, is a graphic designer and she mm-hmm. set up a webpage for me. Okay. I think it's called danielclem.org or something like that. And there's a, a listing on there that says, you know, do you want Clem to speak? So, so there's a way, I, again, I haven't received, I've received invitations to speak since, you know, this, this, this website has been up, but never it's come through there. So I'm not okay. really sure that that's working, but my email address is simple. It's just Clem, K-L-E-M at Muhlenberg. It's a torturous name. I'll spell it. M-U-H-L-E-N-B-E-R-G. M-U-H-L-E-N-B-E-R-G. So Clem at Muhlenberg.edu. That's the only website I have. Sometimes you can include Daniel Clem. Either one works. Uh, but, you know, I'm anxious to uh, I'm anxious to have the opportunity to speak to as many people as I can. I'll, I'll, I'll share one little tiny vignette was uh, when I was a young professor a uh, National Geographic writer came to our campus and gave some talks, heard about my research, came to visit me, introduced himself, said, I want to, you know, found your, your research really fascinating. And I'd like to write uh, an article about that. And I have this in the book, you know, and I, and I say, well, you know, I, I said in, in my writing, I said, well, there was this uncomfortable minute or so of silence. And I replied to him and I said, gee, I wanted to do that. <laughs> and, you know, and he honored me. He didn't write the article. He left it to me. But when he left, nobody from National Geographic or anybody else ever contacted me. And I learned a lesson, right? I learned the lesson that either I don't have the reputation or the image or the contacts to have those kinds of opportunities, but reporters do. And so every reporter, and now every podcast host who contacts me, I'm, you know, enthusiastic because I know that you people are the best educators. You know, we might have education as our title and what our job occupation is, but, but our reach is relatively modest. Your reach is so much more expansive and can do so much more good. So anybody that calls, I'm anxious to make sure that they get what they need to fulfill their goal. Well, thanks so much for, for uh, giving me the opportunity today. I learned a lot from reading your book and from listening to you today. So thanks again, uh, Daniel. Uh, just let's close. Uh, are there any organizations helping out, taking the lead on this? Uh, obviously, you're, you're uh, on the bully pulpit screaming at people to, to make change. Uh, is, is anyone else in a position of uh, influence uh, working hard on this? Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, again, I have the history of the interest of various groups, you know, in my, in my, in my book, chapter eight, you know, is a, is a chronicle of, of the kind of frustration as well as successes that took place over time from the seventies up to the present. Uh, but I recently, for example, much to my surprise and delight, the National Audubon Society asked me to have a webinar. I think that is available right in YouTube. 
still okay. to this day. I'll, put a a, I'll find that and put a link to it in the podcast notes. Great. Hey, that was just done not too long ago. And uh, starting about the 2000s or a little thereafter, the American Burning Conservancy has had a big role in this. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're a big influential lobbying group. They've been behind the New York City laws and, and they're, uh, they have an expansive website that talks about uh, this issue. Very cool. Well, thanks so much, Daniel. I appreciate you being on with me. Uh, I'll make sure I put in the podcast notes and in a blog post I put up about this, lots of ways people can find your book, uh, see some of the other resources about this issue. And I would love it if uh, listeners would uh, reach out to me with uh, you know comments or suggestions either on the, on the blog post or on the podcast notes. So Daniel, thanks so much for being on with me today. Uh, and you have a great day and good luck. Well, thank you very much. And thanks again for the opportunity and the privilege. And uh, I, I will help you or your listeners uh, in any way I can. Take Have care. Have a great day. Bye now. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast number 126. I agree with Dr. Clem that it can seem like it's really hard to feel like you can make a difference or really have an impact on many of the issues that are causing the loss of our birds. But that reducing the deaths at glass windows is a problem where we can individually have some level of impact. In the podcast notes and on the birdbanner.com blog posts associated with this episode, I'll put links to some of the resources we talk about on the, on the episode. Of course, I'll also put a link to the website Dr. Clem mentions where you can buy his book, which also has all of these resources and a whole lot more. I really did find the book informative, educational, and enjoyable, so I encourage you to obtain it and read it too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day.